from Psalm 50. This is what God has told us. I have no need of a bull from your stall or goats from your pens, for every animal in the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains and the insects in the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all that is in it. Reading from the Old Testament, from the book of Haggai, chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. This next reading is found in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 9, 13 and 14. Don't you know that those who serve in the temple get their food from the temple, and that those who serve at the altar share in what is offered on the altar? In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. May the Lord add ease. From the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 19. You can find this in the Bible in front of you in the pew on pages uh, 908 and 909. Just then a man came to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to have eternal life? Why do you ask me what is good? Jesus replied, there is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Which ones? He inquired. Jesus replied, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother and love your neighbor as yourself. All these things I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Then Jesus turned and said to his disciples, Truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, Who then could be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. 
Okay, I know you're dying to know how I'm going to pull all of those texts together, right? We'll get there. What do you think of our cover today? How many of you know that there has been a new $100 bill released this week by the U.S. Treasury? All right. Well, this is it. Very exciting. Our currency finally has some color to it. We're no longer going to be able to call it strictly a greenback. It's going to be a green, orange, red, blue back, something, anyway. Kind of an exciting piece. Well, it's there not just because it's neat and it's colorful and it was in the news. It's there because we're going to talk about money, among other things, today. Because we're looking at economies that sustain. And the miracle that that really is. As my letter indicates, this week, uh, Elder Rothler and I and a few others from the West Region had the privilege of going to Ohio again, to the Conference on Innovation. They've run this conference now nine years. This was... Uh, my eighth time to this conference, I've never regretted the investment of time, uh, money, and the investment of money comes from a variety of places. Uh, you are part of that investment. The conference has been part of that investment. The Ohio conference uh, generously grants us some monies to get there. Um, and so there are a lot of people contributing to make this thing happen. But this year was spectacular as always. And I thought I'd just take a minute to share some of the things that we got to talk about. Dr. Miroslav Wolf was there, and I'm doubting that very many of you have read Wolf, V-O-L-F. He's an evangelical theologian who was part of the School of Missiology for years out of Fuller, and a professor there, but got picked up by Yale. And he's not just a missiologist, he's quite a theologian, and he talked about uh, how to have respectful conversations with people about differences in religion, particularly cross-religious conversations. So your dialogue with an Islamic person or your dialogue with a Hindu or Buddhist person or some other major faith. And his premise was twofold, if I heard him correctly or understood him correctly, that basically respect entails having a very clear idea of your own belief structure and being able to articulate that in a gentle way in the context of Christianity, it would be a revelation that we build our faith on. It's unique this way. God is revealed in the person of Christ in a way that no other religion shares. And so rather than the, the respect of conversation being something that ends up being something of a dismissal, oh yeah, you're right, we all end up at the same place, we all believe the same thing when it comes right down to it, everybody's the same, that's sort of the interfaith dialogue that uh, um, we want to enter on an amateur and amicable level. He says, no, to the contrary, you need to take seriously the differences and honor those and respect those. And how he, the, the, the fascinating piece is our spiritual obligation to enter that dialogue fully uh, convinced that there is nothing equal to the revelation of God in Christ. Nothing that can match that. Nothing so powerful. Nothing so efficacious. Nothing so saving. Okay? And allow that there is grace and truth and beauty and what might be shared with us. It was a very interesting uh, approach that he took. He's, he's written on a number of things. The book I'm reading of his right now is called The End of Memory. I read it on the plane going over and have yet to complete it. But a marvelous book in which he explores how do we remember rightly? 
I'm going to be preaching about this because I think it's, a, or bringing him out to talk to you about it. It's a subject we need, to, we need to spend some time on because he points out very briefly that in, mem- in memory, we can end up perpetuating our own evils by misremembering. We can misremember in a way that causes us to be diminished compared to what really happened, and we can misremember in a way that makes somebody who harmed us more of a villain and give them more power in our lives than we ought. Very, very interesting stuff, particularly since we all know, and and maybe Matt Ferguson better than anybody working with the police department, how fickle memory is. We can even create artificial memory through rehearsal. We can think something has happened that didn't. We can convince ourselves of that. So, uh, interesting guy, and we, we were blessed again to share time with him this year as we did last year. I won't, I won't take our, our, our whole sermon time just recapping all the treasures that were there, but um, Carrie Morrison was there from the business, Hollywood Business Improvement District. I knew her when I served in Hollywood, so that was fun to see her and hear of her spiritual journey, working with homeless people there and the innovative ways that she's tried to bring various agencies together to deal with what looks like to me an impossible problem an intractable issue. Uh, and, and her courage and her humility were, were stunning and uh, brought a lot of interest to the uh, conversations and to the room. We got to hear from a couple of very famous evangelical writers. And I, you know, you've probably gathered after nine years of hearing me that I'm, I'm, there, are, there are Adventist veins of thought that are particularly evangelical. I don't tend to flow that way a whole lot, and yet uh, found a conversation with these men remarkably invigorating. Um, Ron Sider was there, who wrote the book, The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind, and also we had uh, a fellow by the name of, and it's right there in the bulletin again, and I'm going to forget it. Yeah, Andy Crouch was there, who's the current editor of Christianity Today, and if you don't read that journal, that's worth your time as well. Very articulate fellow. Anyway, I come back uh, with lots of treasures and uh, feeling, feeling very rich and full. But one of the things that I reflected on in my trip is germane to today's sermon, and that is the economies that sustain. I was struck by what a miracle it is that I, Greg Honus, living in Glendale, California, could travel to Columbus, Ohio for a period of three days and whatever else I added on to that and survive that and come back all within a very short defined amount of time without privation of any kind. And I got to reflecting on the complexity of a single transaction, just any single transaction and how complex that is in our world. Just, just pulling a suitcase out of the garage assumes so many things, right? It assumes a garage. So somebody had to know how to make aggregate products and pour a cement slab that would be strong enough to last and hold a car in the first place. Somebody had to know how to build a garage. They had to know about wood tinsel strength, and they had to know about products that might be fire retardant, and they had to know about uh, plastering or uh, stuccoing the exterior surfaces. How much research has gone to something as simple as a roof tile? 
especially if it's composite. So just the garage itself assumes a whole lot, just myriads and myriads and myriads of jobs and ideas and inventions and human pieces of ingenuity. And then I grabbed a suitcase. Now, my suitcase is not made from natural materials. It's made from plastics and from uh, fibers that are based in petroleum products. So just imagine the number of people employed in chemistry and in research to develop those products out of natural petroleum. If you drive up to Ojai, on the way to Ojai, if you, if you go through Santa Paula, you will go past a place that smells like rotten eggs. And just about there or south of there, you'll see natural oil oozing out of the earth and flowing down toward the road on the side. To take that product and make a suitcase out of it is pretty remarkable. It's, 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 it's pretty unbelievable, all of itself. Well, I won't belabor this. You get the idea. You take the suitcase, you put clothes in it. Somebody had to design them. Somebody had to do the dyes. Somebody had to make the materials. Somebody had to sew them, fabricate them. They had to be sold. There are whole shipping changes involved in that. I didn't go to the conference naked, I assure you. Somebody had to figure out how to build an automobile to get me from my home to the airport and had to have the wisdom to design an airport with a runway long enough and all of the different things. Well, I had to park somewhere, right? Somebody had to figure that out. And getting on an airplane, the airplane alone has a million parts. Can you imagine the, litter, the uh, metallurgy alone in that? In a fan blade, a single fan blade? You know, I want to know that somebody spent some time working on that fan blade. I do. I want to know that somebody spent some time and figured out how to make sure it wasn't going to crack or fall apart at 38,000 RPM or whatever it runs at, flying through the cabin, through my head and out the other side, bringing us all. I, I want to know that somebody spent some time on that. The miracle of navigation, the miracle of being able to map from 32,000 feet up in the air exactly where we are, GPS, satellites, all the pieces that go into an airplane and flying from one spot to the other, the communications it took to call a conference in the first place, the creativity and ingenuity and all the people who have been working and writing. We're talking about an incredibly complex thing. <clears throat> so I got to thinking, is it a blessing that I could go to a conference like this or that you can go do what you do every day. Absolutely. An incredible blessing. And yet this blessing doesn't occur unless hundreds of thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people have learned trades, skills, academic disciplines, have written, communicated, conveyed, have transported, built, assembled, have researched, studied, pulled together. I got to thinking about it just sitting in the kitchen of the hotel. How does food get from the field to the table in a hotel in a city? And all of the complexities that go into that economy. Right now, our government's shut down, and some people are rejoicing about that. I don't understand that. But I do know this, that in the miraculously complex world in which we live, we are so blessed to be a part of an economy that sustains. 
We are so blessed to be able to do what we're able to do. And as an extension and corollary of that, I want to point something out. If it mattered to God that there were four people willing to share with a bunch of pastors and parachurch people in Columbus, Ohio, and it mattered to God that I was able to go there and learn and share, if the work that they do in writing the books that they're writing and helping the people they're helping and serving the homeless where they're serving them, if that matters to God, then in order for those things to happen, everything else had to matter to God. Your work, what you do, how you do it matters, and it matters to God. Whether you have kept books, whether you have poured driveway slabs, whether you've served in medicine or research or travel or law enforcement, wherever you have labored, wherever you've put forth human effort, you've done that as someone who has been created in the image of God and given the power to participate in a human economy that sustains. Not a particularly original thought, but I bring it to you today because I want you to reflect on how powerful and important that is. That what you do and how you do it matters to God. You see, if the mechanic who worked on the jet engine on the plane I flew home had not done his job correctly, I and 160 other people might be in the news today or yesterday as victims, as vapor, as people no longer present in the world. That work mattered, and it mattered to God. So, I'm going to leave you with this thought because it's one we're going to pick up and run with a bit in weeks to come as we approach Thanksgiving time and harvest and all that that means. But for today, I want to pull back and look just at a couple of biblical economies and the miracles of those economies that sustain and the way that that speaks to us in stewardship. Because not only are we responsible for our work and the things that we do professionally in life, in our homes and with our families, as a way of honoring God and mattering to God and to one another. But we have some biblical models for ecologies and economies that work and ought to inform us and ought to help us in our journey. I'm not going to spend a lot of time in the Haggai or in the Psalm texts this morning. Excuse me. More product placement. I still haven't seen the check. We're waiting on the royalties. But as you heard in the psalm, Psalm 50, the psalmist says, or God is speaking, God is the voice speaking, and he says, I don't need your sacrifices. If I'm hungry, I don't tell you about it. I own everything. That's the declaration God makes. Here is Israel in its own economy, and we don't usually think of Israel as a kingdom with an economy, but it was a kingdom, it was a sovereign state 
with interstate and intrastate relationships, with a complex web of supply chains and producers and consumers, and it had a temple economy as well. And God said, look, you have choices to make. You're going to honor me or you're not. What I really want from you is not just your money, not just the cow or the goat you're going to sacrifice. I own all of them anyway. What I really want is you to live justly and to walk humbly with your God. That's what I really want. What I really want is for you to care for one another and to care for those who are less empowered than you are who share less in the goods that have been created in the world that I have made. That's what I want from you. Not your worship services, not your celebrations, as is said in the prophets elsewhere. But God makes this point, it's a very important point. I own everything and I'm the source of everything. Anything else that we come up with is a distortion. Anything else we come up with is a distortion. We have been created. We have been given a garden home. We have been given a dominion. We have been given an earth. We have been given enormous resources. And we've been given responsibility and stewardship. And God says, that's not you, that's me. I did that. And he did. And then he says, and whatever you've done to multiply it or increase it or own it, I own that too. You see, you are an image of me. So the psalmist is very clear in what the psalmist is sharing there. And then Haggai, let's just pop over there briefly. These books are so small, sometimes it's hard to find them. So you heard it read, Haggai 1, 5 to 7. And 2. Give careful thought to your ways. It's a refrain that's going to come through this passage. It's a classic stewardship passage. Give thought to your ways. Have you found that life isn't what you'd hoped? Has it found that when you consume, it doesn't satisfy? Have you found that when, it, when you build, you're not as protected as you'd hoped? Have you found that what you create doesn't last, doesn't satisfy? Here are the words. You've planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but you don't find yourself satisfied or full. You put on clothes, but you're not warm. You earn wages, but put them in a purse with a hole in it. You're going through the motions, you're participating in an economy, and life isn't working for you. And this is what the Lord Almighty says, give careful thoughts to your ways. Well, then he goes on, and I won't read all of it, but he says, I want you to take care of what you're neglecting. I want you to take care of my house. You're taking care of your house You're patching it and repairing it. You're fixing it up. You're making it nice. You've lined it with everything good that you can come up with, but you've neglected my house, is what God says. 
You haven't taken care of your prime directive in the economy of things. You see, I am the Lord your God. There is no one and nothing before me. We're created. He's the creator. He's the owner of everything. And when we are given the power to own, when we're given the power to produce, when we're given the power to create, we are given the power to distort. We're given the power to pervert. We're given the power to hoard. We're given the power to break image. We're given the power to neglect. And what God says is that's idolatry. He hates two things. He hates idolatry and he hates injustice. Read the Old Testament and you'll see nothing else emerge. God is a, hate, a lover of all and a hater of idolatry and injustice. And when we line our own dens, so to speak, and when we focus on our own needs, and when we build our own wealth and focus on our own power, we commit idolatry on the one hand and we perpetuate injustice on the other. How is it just that there are people in our country earning $30 million for the jobs they do while they have employees that are making $7 an hour for the jobs they do? In what universe does this work? Oh, and don't talk to me about, well, he had an idea or it's his intellectual property or creativity. Don't talk to me about hard work. Well, he earned it. Nobody earns $30 million a year. Nobody earns $30 million a year. So let's bring that down even to scale. How is it just that somebody earns $3 million a year in an economy in which tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, if not millions in this country earn less than $20,000 a year? How is that how does that work? What does that look like? How is that an extension of the image of God? How do we fail to commit idolatry on the one extreme and fail to commit injustice on the other when that's the economy in which we're participating? And so God says, I'm going to give you an antidote. I'm going to help you with this a little bit. The first thing is you're going to honor me first. And so in Haggai's case, we're going to take care of my house. I want you to go to Lebanon and bring timbers down. I want you to fix the place up. I want you to put some money toward this. Jesus knew what he was talking about when he said, invest first in the kingdom of God. You're going to reap what you sow. God is no fool. Put your money where your mouth is, where your priorities are. God knows all about this. He owns everything. And so when he says, take care of my house, that's an economy that sustains on so many levels. It puts our priorities right. It honors God. It avoids idolatry and it avoids injustice or helps. It reminds us that he's the Lord of all and the owner of everything. And so as we pay our tithes and offerings, the system in which we live and work, the economy that we've decided on, when we follow that system and participate in that, we are on the one hand avoiding idolatry 
and on the other hand, helping to avoid injustice. Doesn't mean injustice doesn't still go forward. Haggai speaks to this from the Old Testament point of view, from a, if you don't do this, then calamity is going to come to you, and if you do, God is going to bless. I want to move past that. God isn't angry. He doesn't hate you. He's not out to get you. This isn't about a cosmic zap. This isn't about exclusion. He would that nobody be lost. He didn't die for a few. He died for everybody. So let's not live in the world that says, well, I made $11 today, so if I don't give a dollar, 10 cents, I'm going to go to hell. Got to pay that tithe. That is not going to work. It's neither going to guarantee you to heaven, nor is it going to solve any problem in the kingdom of God per se. It's just going to mean that you had a very cursory sort of view, a very basic kind of view. What is going to make a difference is if you say, Lord, you're the owner of everything, and you've asked me for very little. You've asked me for very little. You've asked me to bring tithes and offerings with joy. It's very little. It's just a small percentage. And you've said in return, I'm going to, I'm going to receive something that I'm going to trust you for. It isn't necessarily great wealth you're going to receive. The Jews had it wrong on this account. Remember, Jesus constantly went around and people, when they saw people in bad circumstances, they said, who sinned, this man or his parents? As if God was judging him by giving him some sort of infirmity or calamity. God doesn't do this. You know, here's the deal. If today you're wrestling in your mind and you go, should I give something at offering time or shouldn't I? And let's say for argument's sake you don't, and you're going home and you get a flat tire, and you're going fast enough that the flat tire pulls you off the road and you bump into a pole and it half totals your car, you know what you're going to think? Oh, I should have given something an offering today. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. I'm sorry to tell you it doesn't work that way. I know you'll think that. We all want... see. Life is hard enough, right? What we really, really want in a God is a jukebox. I'm going to put in my quarter, and I'm going to hit E7, and I want to hear La Bamba. E7. Life is good. Right? That's what we want. I'll quit dancing. Thank you. I'll, I'll quit. Unless, of course, it would make you give more, in which case... I'll dance so that you can give to make me quit dancing. How's that? We'll just take an offering and when it gets... No, I'm just teasing you. I'm just teasing you. Totally teasing. God doesn't work this way. We would love for our prayer life to go like this. Lord, I'm praying if I could just say the right words. The words are the quarter and then the results are going to come. Well, we've had enough faith. We've said the right thing. Aunt Lois isn't going to die of cancer. Never mind that she's 95. Do we really expect to live forever in this economy? God isn't in the business. He's not a fool. We don't play him. We don't manipulate him. We don't get to punch it in. We don't get to say, here's what I've done. It's not a card that you put into a machine. It's you, your being, your heart, your soul, your mind. That's how you love God, is with everything. Not with just a little piece. 
So I want you to listen to Haggai, and I want you to forget him. I want you to listen to the psalm, and I want you to forget it. Yes, God owns everything. And he gives you things and trusts you and empowers you and says, I'm not going to interfere. I want you to figure out what you need to be doing with these things. And in Haggai, promises blessings and curses and take care of my house, but it's up to you. Will you bless God and take, participate in that by taking care of his house or not? It's, it's your choice. The other economy, though, that he reminds us of is one of consequence. He says you reap what you sow. So you can't plant a vineyard and expect to harvest carrots. You can't plant spinach and expect that you're going to be able to pick peaches from peach trees. You can't live a life of neglect and expect to harvest something of worth. It doesn't work that way. Jesus said, where your treasure is, your heart will be too. And so when we use our treasure to honor God by avoiding idolatry on the one side and preventing injustice on the other, the reward is eternal. We've aligned ourselves with the values of the one who made us. We've invested where he tells us to invest. Well, I'm running behind. I want to go to the Matthew passage. I'm going to remind you on the way there really quickly what the Corinthians passage is all about. The Corinthians passage is Saul, or Paul, actually, going after the people of Corinth who were not at that point famous for giving and, in fact, famous for backsliding and grumbling and a host of other things. But he went after them and he said, look, here's the deal. Am I not entitled? Have I not created a Christian community here? Have I not won you to the gospel of Christ? Am I not titled to share in the, the value of that? And his offerings are collected. Am I not entitled to live off of that? But I have chosen not to. I would rather die than have the deprivation of not being able to say, I've done it without you. Paul's very... Uh, pointed about it. For him, tent maker ministry is the way that he wants to go. But one of the ecologies and economies that work in the kingdom of God is when we take care of God's house, when we bring the tithes to the storehouse, when we exercise that, there's plenty. Only a small few of us live off of this and make our living in this preaching of the gospel. But it's an economy and an ecology that works. Because your work matters to God and because your response to his lordship matters to God. And because of your care of all that he's entrusted you to, because all that matters to God. What happens in the economy of church life matters to him too. Matthew 19 is an interesting parable. And it's another... Um, or actual historical happening. It's another declaration that has to do with justice. We're tempted to read the story of the rich young man, a rich young ruler, in a number of ways. The classical ways we distort this are, first of all, keeping the commandments as a valid entry point into the kingdom of heaven. We're not saved by legalism. 
nor by law-keeping per se, although this is the approach of the Pharisee. So Jesus answers him from this approach and says, have you kept the whole law? And he says, I've been fastidious since I was young. Now Jesus gets to the heart of the matter. He says, but what about your spirit? Where's your heart? Where's your mind? Where's your soul? Where is that which is most important to you? So you've managed to go through the physical motions of not committing murder, not committing adultery, not committing these things. Where's your heart? The rich young man says, all these I've kept, and yet I have the sense I'm lacking something. Jesus said, you're right. If you want to be perfect, and that's, that's a bad word. It's not a bad word. It just doesn't mean what you think it means. You see, perfect doesn't mean that we're then sinless, faultless, forever righteous. What perfect in this sense means, if you want to be complete, you see, the young man is saying, I'm still missing something, right? Is Jesus telling him he's missing something or is the young man saying, I'm missing something? I can't hear you. The young man. Clearly the young man who has everything, who's kept the law, who by every standard society would measure him by, is a good, upright citizen, a righteous young man. And because he was wealthy, by the way, honored in that particular society as particularly favored and blessed of God. Wealth was a sign of favor and blessing. Old Testament carryover. So this young man says, I have all of this. I'm everything I should be, and yet I'm not. I'm missing something. What is it? And Jesus says, we're going to get to the heart of it. If you want to be perfect, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And you'll have treasure in heaven. You've heard about that, where moths and rust and all that, thieves don't get to it. Then come follow me. This young man is all of us. He's not some historical figure who happened years ago. He's all of us. What Jesus is asking him is not to do something stupid. You see... I'm going to tell you a, a scenario that would be stupid. If you went home and sold everything you had and went to downtown L.A. and found 30 homeless people who were not on medications, were schizophrenic, were abusing drugs, and you gave them everything you had, that wouldn't make you eligible for the kingdom or perfect. It would make you stupid. God isn't asking you to bankrupt yourself. He's not asking you to ruin yourself, and he's not asking you to throw your resources at places where they won't bear fruit. He's not asking you to make a bad investment. What he's asking the young man to do is to share power. Who has power? The more money you have, the more economic power you have, and what's often connected with economic power is political power. When you have power, you get to determine things, make policies, set rules, pass laws, and people with power are inclined to do so in such a way that perpetuates power. Jesus says, share your power. and share it with people who are disempowered. 
Share it with people who don't have what you have. And then follow me. Become one of my disciples. Then Jesus says, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. I tell you again, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for the rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples are astounded. So usually we use this in a couple of ways. Uh, One of the uh, classic sort of uh, expositions I've heard on this is that the eye of the needle doesn't refer to the eye of a literal needle or a literal camel. It refers to a particular gate that was low and narrow in Jerusalem and that was difficult for camels to go through, particularly if they had a load on their back. That's one of the things. That's kind of a neat, neat one. So it is possible, we were happy to say, for the rich to enter heaven, but that gate might take the load right off the camel's back. That's, that's a classic kind of thing. What I'm going to suggest to you is that unless you're willing to become one of the children, as Jesus talked about in other places, see, unless you become as one of these, you cannot inherit the kingdom. Do you remember that passage? What did he mean? He doesn't mean naive. He doesn't mean little. He doesn't mean young. He's not talking about anything literal. If we go there, we're as guilty as Nicodemus who said, what, am I to reenter my mother's womb and be born again? And Jesus said, really, you're a teacher of the law? No, 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 no. No literalisms, no naivete here. It means, are you willing to give up the idolatry? Are you willing to practice the justice that comes with sharing? Sharing power and sharing the means to power. So today is our day to talk about stewardship. And with that in mind, I'm going to invite you to put your priorities straight. I'm going to invite myself to do the same. I'm going to invite all of us to align ourselves with a couple of understandings. God is creator and Lord of all. He's the owner of everything. God in Christ has revealed himself to be generous, emptying himself to the point of death on the cross, that no one should be lost but all might live. He has shared power with you and money and resource with you because he has made you like himself in his image, and given you dominion over an earth. He's allowed you to participate in an economy that sustains and an ecology that sustains. He's given you power to ruin things and to make them better, to hurt and to heal, to destroy and to build. He's given you power, and he asks you not to worship it, but to worship him. He's given you power and resources and he's asked you not to use these in injustice, but in justice, in, through justice, to honor him. We can only say he's Lord and master of our lives when we're willing to give up idolatry and injustice. And when we're called to give, it's a step in the right direction on both polarities. May God bless us as we seek to serve him well. So Lord, as we go from this place, bless us with the ability to participate in economies that sustain. Help us to acknowledge you in all things.
Amen.